Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, where for half an hour you will get lost in science. That's pretty much what the name says, isn't it? That's that's the suggestion. That's the concept. Yeah. Uh, and what a show we have for you this week. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, this week I am going to be talking about superfluids. Um, not just a fancy name. It is it is um, a weird property that you get with liquid helium. So when helium is cooled to just just above absolute zero, it does weird properties like being able to climb out of a container and stuff like that. So not, not just making you drink really cold or something. No, no, it would do that as well. But right. um, if you want to drink something, then it will climb out of your throat. Yeah, I don't I don't recommend that. But no, a super, liquid helium is really cool. Obviously, um, so I'm going to talk about these properties, what makes it have these properties, and yeah, and all that kind of stuff. A bit of interesting facts about what happens near absolute zero. And Claire is talking to Tom Fairman from the University of Melbourne's School of Ecology and Forest Science, who will be talking with her about eucalypts and their responses to increasing fire cycles, I think. Yeah, so basically we all know that eucalypt species seem to, you know, thrive with, with bushfires. Or yeah, I think, I think they, they rely on fires periodically, but, yeah. but they have to be a certain length apart because the trees have to get big enough to flower and produce seeds. Yeah. So if the fires get closer together, that's probably going to change. And Tom's going to explain exactly how that's going to work, potentially. Yes. So uh, stay tuned for that one. A very hot story there. Okay, <laughs> on with the show. All right, so today I want to talk about the the weird behaviour of some common elements. I mean, I had considered addressing the controversy about metallic hydrogen, but there's not much to say about that except that some physicists doubt the discovery, and, you know, that's about that. All right, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. Um, (laughs) Okay, okay, you've you've convinced me. I'll chuck a little bit about metallic hydrogen. All it is is it's uh, basically the element hydrogen at high pressures is believed to become a metal. This is uh, thought to happen, say, in the interior of the planet Jupiter, for instance. Um, and in January 2017, some physicists at Harvard University claimed to have actually created it in the lab using a diamond anvil. This is where you kind of get the, the tips of two diamonds together, squeezed together, you create a really high pressure. They claimed they got to 495 gigapascals um, and they created what they thought was metallic hydrogen. But other physicists aren't very convinced because the paper was not terribly convincing. It just had kind of photos of a metal dot going, see, metallic hydrogen. 
Diamond anvils are pretty cool, though. Diamond anvils are pretty cool. Anyway, um, so instead, I'm going to talk about superfluid liquid helium, which is, in its way, much weirder. Uh, now, helium, as you all know, is the second lightest element on the periodic table. It's uh, The most common isotope is helium-4, which has two protons and two neutrons in its nucleus, mm-hmm. okay, for a total of four. Um, its boiling point is 4.22 kelvins. So that's the point where it transitions from a gas to a liquid and vice versa. Um, but if you cool it down even further, down to 2.1768 kelvins, um, you reach what's called the lambda point where it starts to become superfluid. By the time you get down to absolute zero, it is 100% superfluid. And a superfluid, well, so you've heard of a superconductor, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. A superconductor is a conductor that has zero resistance. Well, a superfluid has zero viscosity. Oh, right. Yes. Wow. So if you, for instance, stir it with a spoon, it would just keep spinning when wow. you took the spoon out. So there's no drag on There's no the, drag. There's no right. friction. Um, wow. It does weird things. Like I said, it climbs out of a container. So you know how a glass of water has a meniscus? You know, kind of at the edges, it kind of goes up slightly onto the sides of the glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if it's really full, it sort of domes at the top. Yeah. yeah. But if the way it goes up, the climbs of the wall of the glass. Essentially, if you put liquid helium in a glass, it will just climb up the sides and out of the glass. Um, Spooky. Now, yeah. that always made me wondering, how does it know it's in a glass? Um, <laughs> but, like, for instance, if you were to get, say... achieve consciousness. If you were to, say, like, have a sealed jar and you put a cup of liquid helium inside the sealed jar, what it would do is it would climb until it equalised the levels, you know, inside the cup and in the rest of the jar, and there'd be a thin film around the top of the jar called a Rollin film for those who are playing at home. Uh, what else is there? Oh, okay, there's this thing called quantized rotation. So what happens is if you rotate a container of superfluid slowly, the fluid won't rotate because, you know, friction and stuff like that. Uh, no friction, that is. That's right, yes. But if you reach a critical rotation speed, then it does develop a vortex, but the vortex will only rotate at a defined speed. So if you speed up even further, it'll eventually develop two vortices, each with the same kind of speed. And basically it just creates the extra speed just goes into creating more vortices rather than speeding up the spinning. Wow. Which is kind of weird. That is weird. Yeah. Is is there a um sorry, is there a maximum number of vortices? I do not know. <laughs> I do not know. Um, now so these properties are due to quantum mechanics. So a superfluid is similar to a Bose Einstein condensate, and it's where a bunch of atoms are all in the same ground level quantum state. Okay, so it's a similar kind of thing, but it's a bit more complex than that. Not all boson Einstein condensates are superfluids, not all superfluids are boson Einstein condensates, as we shall see. Um, it was discovered in 1937. You're probably wondering, how was this found? <laughs> um, it was discovered by a couple of groups. It was a, a Russian physicist called Peter Kapitska and two Canadians who were working in England. They were called Jack Allen and Don Meissner. Now, Kapitska... Uh, so, helium had first been liquefied in 1908, but Kapitska was working at Cambridge University. He'd been there since about 1921, working with Ernest Rutherford. And he was trying to cool it down even further. He had a new technique of using gas expansion to get the, the helium even colder. Um, but then he went back to Russia to visit his family in 1935, and they wouldn't let him leave, wouldn't let him go back to, to England. So uh, the people at Cambridge, they helped him set up a new lab in Moscow. They sent over equipment, and they sent over some technicians to help him set it up. In the meantime, the two Canadians, Alan and Misner started work at the same laboratory that Kapitska had come from, and they basically continued his work there. Uh, and so about the same time, both laboratories seemed to have achieved superfluid helium. Just that the, um, the ones working in England, they found out what Kapitska was doing when one of the technicians came back and said, hey, this guy's doing similar stuff. And they realized they needed to publish their 
their work pretty quickly. And so both teams published papers in January of 1938. Um, but Kapitska always thought that they cheated, essentially, that he got there first and they only found out it because the guy had come back from, from Moscow. So uh, he never really accepted it. was like the um, the dispute over it meant it was 40 years. It was like 1978 until the Nobel Prize was given for it and it just was Peter Kapitska who received the Nobel Prize for uh, superfluid liquid helium. So there you go. Um, what else about um, superfluidity? Um, okay, so it's not only helium-4 where you can get superfluidity. It can be done in helium-3, which is an isotope that has uh, one less, one fewer neutron. Um, so because that, it's got, it's got an odd number of particles in its nucleus. It has different properties. So it actually becomes superfluid at much, much lower temperature, one millikelvin. Why, why is that? Um, because... Simply because um, I'm talking about how the uh, the helium four superfluid is similar to a Bose-Einstein condensate that has things that obey a certain type of mathematics called and they're, they're called bosons, those particles. Whereas uh, helium three nucleus is a fermion and has kind of different mathematics that apply to it. It's a bit hard to explain without drawing on a whiteboard or a chalkboard. Um, but it can also be done with other atoms as well, like uh, sodium and lithium, those sort of things. Uh, in 1999, uh, Danish physicist Lenny Howe used a condensate of sodium to slow light down to 17 milliseconds. And later, she actually managed to stop light completely using a superfluid sodium condensate. Because why not? <laughs> why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, if but you can trap you light. Why stop light completely? Exactly. What does you it do can, when it stops? Yeah, yeah what does it do a, when it stops? Put a box just, in the way or something. Draw the curtains. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> um, other things it's useful for, um, superfluids obviously would make a good gyroscope because they just keep spinning. Um, they can be used as a quantum solvent. What's a quantum solvent, you ask? What you can do is you can get a single molecule of a gas dissolved in a superfluid and it will still act like it is a gas. Like it'll still behave like a gas molecule even though there's only one molecule of it. Crazy, right? Um, What's that good for? I don't know. If you okay. wanted to study the properties of the molecule. All right, fair enough, yeah. Um, you can also find them in space. Um, the interior of neutron stars are believed to be superfluid, but made of neutrons. Um, and there are theories that suggest that dark matter itself may be a superfluid. Um, but as well as that, it's kind of, because it has zero viscosity, it's kind of the ideal fluid. You know, and physicists love kind of the ideal case of things. <laughs> so it's worth studying just for that thing alone. You know, the, the way it behaves, it forms vortices. That's an interesting thing. And maybe, I mean, we still understand how vortices and turbulence and stuff works in real fluid. So understanding how it works in a superfluid can help us know a bit about fluids. I don't know. And do they, they, they just love it because it makes all their other equations work as well, probably. Oh, look, you know, it's just fun to play with, I think, is the, <laughs> is the other thing. And that's, that's the main thing of what it's all about, I think. Are there any cool um, YouTube clips of superfluids? I'm sure there are. There's this thing called the fountain effect, which I didn't want to include because it's kind of hard to explain. But I reckon that's one's worth looking up, where it kind of fountains out of a capillary. So, yeah, and there's, yeah, there's video of the, um, the flowing outside of the container as well. That's pretty cool. I know what my, the rest of, of my day is going to look like. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
Eucalyptus trees are synonymous with the Australian bush. The smell, the silhouette, the gum nuts, and of course the bushfires that go along with them. Of course, fire is part of our ecosystem and how it adapted. But what happens to eucalypt forests when fire becomes more frequent? Well, my guest today is studying just that. Tom Fairman is completing his PhD at the University of Melbourne at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences on eucalypts and their responsiveness to fire. Tom, welcome to Lost in Science. It's great to be here. So before we start, can we just talk briefly about how awesome and diverse eucalypts are in general? Well, yes, we can. And this is one of my favourite subjects. Yeah. Uh, There's about 700 eucalypt species or so all throughout Australia, and they cover pretty much everywhere apart from the really extreme environments. So you find them not in deserts and not at the very top of mountains, but there's pretty much a eucalypt that matches every spot along that spectrum. So they're pretty amazing in that way. Do they range fall outside of Australia? Yes. So there's, well, not much. There's, I mean, the majority, they very are much sort of an Australian species in many respects, but there are a couple of species that you do find uh, in Papua New Guinea and East Timor, but the, the majority of the range is really very much within Australia. Now, in your research, what types of eucalypt forest communities do you look at and um, what, what have you found? So... I'm particularly interested in, so I guess you can look at sort of three major types of eucalypts, particularly in Victoria. You've got those really iconic mountain ash uh, forests. So they are the ones that grow really tall. They've got things like the Leadbeater's possum in them. Um, I'm not looking at those ones. So I'm more interested in the ones that sort of grow below where those forests are found, like the more dry eucalypt forests that re-sprout after a fire. And I'm also looking at the snow gum forest, which you see in areas around Mount Hotham and up in the snow fields. So they're my two sort of main study types. So um, the really high areas? Yes. Yep. Yes. And the really low areas. And then the really low areas. So I'm areas. sort of uh, not interested in the middle bit there. I'm interested <laughs> in the top and the very bottom. Yeah. Right. What sort of conclusions have you and what sort of things have you found so so far in regards to, to what, fire? Yeah, well, so I guess the thing about those <clears throat> eucalypts that grow in those particular areas is that because they can re-sprout, we tend to think that they're really resilient to fire. So, you know, sure. a, fire, a fire burns through, they might be, they may look like a total bombsite after the fire's burned through, really high severity, um, but within a month or so, they're putting out these little buds, so they can be called epicormic buds, and that is when they grow up the stem of the tree or they have this um, pretty amazing reserve at the bottom of the tree called a lignotuber and that has all this reserve lignotuber Lignotuber. so yeah you can call it a basal swelling as well but yeah it's sort of this uh (laughs) i know that's probably not any better (laughs) but um that's a great word yeah but no so the the lignotuber is there as well and it's basically between those two mechanisms they're able to recover from fire so What I was interested in is saying, well, we assume that these forests are really resilient to fire, but if they start getting burnt, say, three times in 10 years or two times in six years, um, what, what happens? Do they actually start to get knocked back? And so... What I have found so far is that particularly with those snow gum forests up in the high, uh, high country areas, they got burned by three fires in 10 years and we saw a pretty dramatic increase in the amount of trees that died after those three fires. So you sort of went from a background mortality rate of maybe 10% to 50% of all the uh, trees dying and on some of my plots it was even as high as 80%. So it's not a great story. 
or a great news story, but um, <clears throat> it does basically sort of, it, it gives us a bit more of an understanding around how they actually respond and maybe they're not as resilient as we think. So from your research, do you think we have a better understanding of how much fire is a good amount of fire for these two different types of eucalypt forests? Yeah, well, I think that it's it's quite useful in that way that we're sort of moving beyond that assumption of them being able to basically handle any kind of fire frequency. And um, I suppose the, the background for this is that um, compared to, say, those mountain ash forests that I mentioned earlier, the sort of the really tall, large ones, they've got a very different species response to fire. So what they have is they get killed by a fire as it burns through. And they're re- as they're regenerating after the fire from seedlings, they're not producing any seed for 20 years or so. So we've always known them to be really vulnerable forest types and there's always been a lot of concern about those ash, for- ash forests um, to sort of think, well, if they get start burned at really short intervals, then we're going to start losing them from the landscape. And it's already happened a fair bit in certain parts of Victoria already. Um, so I guess what my research is then coming out and saying is yes worry about the ash forest but then you've also got to be aware of these other forest types as well and think about how they're being affected and if we are seeing increases in the mortality rate in those forest types then you know then we sort of need to think well how do we manage them as well and what can we do so that they recover just as well as other forest types as well we can't be complacent with any of our eucalypt forests we can't be we can't be totally complacent i think that's the main thing about it really um, now, I'm assuming that you're not going out and setting um, these forests alight. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> What sort of experiments, like how do you actually gather your data? I guess you can say from a re- research perspective, I've been relatively fortunate because there's been so much fire in the last 15 years in Victoria. There has I've, to be a silver lining. There, that's the silver lining that I'm looking at there. So since 2003, we have had or oh, maybe about five really major fire events that have grown. Uh, some of them have burnt over 1 million hectares. So um, I think a football field has about two hectares in it. So if that sort of puts it in perspective of how much has been burnt. So within since 2003, the amount of forest that has been burned is equal to the amount of forest that was burned in the 50 years before that. So just in that 15-year bracket or so, we had this huge amount of area that got burned. From a research perspective, I looked at that and said, well, you can actually pick plots of forest types and, and, and arrange the forests and look at them and go, well, we can put plots out there and we can look at different frequencies of fire and forests that have been unburned and forests that have been burned up to three times in 10 years and go out there and set up a plot and measure data about the trees, how they're growing, how they're responding, uh, and that we basically get all that data. And so that's what I did. I went out there and set up 60-odd plots and got all that data, and I've spent a lot of time now sitting at a computer analysing it all. <laughs> um, and will those plots be used in future research? Yeah. I Quite luckily, I've, I've gone back out to them, and we're looking at other elements of that work that I did. So we've gone back and collected different data, say, so... I've, I've got a bit of a bias and I think about eucalypts all the time, but um, other questions are around how do other sh- like different shrub and grasses respond to those different frequencies of fire as well. So, uh, yeah, we've gone out and collected data on that to see how that's, uh, that's changing as well. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Um, it sounds like your research is hugely applicable to the management yeah. of these forests. So what is your greatest hope for how, I guess, your learnings will be used at maybe a government level or a management level? Well, I think 
I think the the best way to think about it would be that obviously when fires burn, uh, like when there's a large bushfire burning through an area, you're thinking about how people, uh, whether people are safe and whether properties are safe and all that. But I think what would be really great is if we move to a point where um, as a fire is burning, we sort of can look at a map and say, well, this area where it's burning is burning through a forest that was burnt maybe only six years previously and it was burnt at this severity class. So then you can have these targeted sort of actions afterwards by managers to say, well, you know, we've got a thousand hectares there that has been burnt really frequently and it's of this forest type. We might need to go in and plant some seedlings or we might need to go in and do a bit of management work to try and restore the forest more and sort of move away from that viewpoint of saying, well, it's the bush, it'll just come back to more sort of an active approach of, well, we need to go out there and do something about it in in response. Is there any part of response where you can actually triage you know, mm. what part of the forest, you know, you either want to manage before a fire comes through or or indeed when a fire is coming through? Well, yeah, I suppose that's the, I, I mean, I guess that's the approach you can take. You can sort of look at an area, say if a fire has burned through in a particular area and you've, you can identify certain parts of that landscape as being vulnerable because we know that it's comprised of that species and it's only going to be in, at this life stage, you know, it's only seedlings at that point. You can say, well, you know, maybe we need to protect that particular area and try and do preventative works like maybe prescribed burning or we need to put additional fire prevention resources around that area if we want to protect it. So, you know, there's a lot of options on the table of what you could do and obviously it's going to sort of come down to that, you know, hierarchy of what's the most important thing to do when the fire's burning the area. But, um, yeah, that's hopefully what what I'm producing out of this will sort of go to uh, assist with that. Um, now, it was National Eucalypt Day recently. It certainly was. Great day. What what a day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everyone celebrated it. 23rd of March. <laughs> I did. Yep. Yeah. There is a lot to love about these trees. Yes. What is your favourite thing about I think, eucalypts? I think my favourite thing about eucalypts is probably their smell. I, uh, I because So the, the forest types that I've worked in uh, have a lot of different eucalypt species in it. Some of my sites had up to maybe 10 eucalypts in it. So... As I sort of would get out there and I was trying to identify what they and what they were or what species they were and trying to work out uh, what it was, I did often spend a fair bit of time sort of then you know scrunching up the leaves and giving them a good sniff and going ah oh, maybe it's this yeah. you know maybe I can link <laughs> that smell of that species to that one and ah uh. so I think um, yeah I think I've always loved the uh, the smell of eucalypts and I think that's my favourite element of them they're very um, yeah it's very a very recognisable smell I think to most Australians so and this might be like choosing a favourite child but do you have a favourite species? I do think that my favourite species would have to be the snow gum. So I, that, I, not just because I'm doing my research on it, but I think uh, I think it's always been sort of everyone's second favourite eucalypt as well. I think uh, <laughs> so. I do take a bit of approach of I think it, you know it's my favourite because it's always sort of the underdog a little bit and it's always sort of losing out to really. Yeah, I thought it would be number one. Oh no, number one is usually the mountain ash. Oh yeah, because I mean, it's I guess tall. It is the world's tallest flowering big, plant, isn't it? You know, it, 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 look, it may be the world's <laughs> tallest flowering plant, but yeah, you know, which is fine. It's fine. I, I grew where I grew up. I was was right near a mountain ash forest, so oh, wow. I, um, I was very, you know, very much a part of that ecosystem when I was growing up and loved that. But I don't know, it's something about those gnarled, twisted snow gums on the top of mountains. They're going through a lot in their life. It's not easy for them. So yeah. I sort of, I've, I've come to really admire them. So, yeah, I think that's my favourite eucalypt for sure. So, Tom, what would be your advice for people who want to maybe get out and um, appreciate different species of eucalypts? 
My advice would be go to a mixed species forest type, which is sort of that more widespread eucalypt forest that you tend to see a lot of, you know, around places like Ballarat and the Wombat Forest and basically anywhere where there's sort of the lower elevation forest type. And And all through other states as well? Yeah, all through other states as well. And um, it's sort of the probably the most widespread forest type um, of eucalypt that we see. It's kind of that really, yeah, less productive forest type, but it's usually got all these different eucalypt species in it. And it's a really interesting forest type if you're wanting to get good at eucalypt identification. So go, go to those sort of forests because you've got sometimes nine or ten eucalypts occurring in one small patch and being able to see and identify the different eucalypts and them growing in that one particular area. It's really interesting to uh, sort of try and work out what's going on there. So that's what I recommend. And is there an app for eucalypt identification that you no. could or oh, a oh, – well, that could be a good I, I have to say I've, um, over many years I've always thought, oh, someone should just make an app for this. But um, yes. no, if, if you're in southeastern Australia, probably the best eucalypt identification book to get is probably by this man called Leon Costamans, and he wrote it probably about 50 years ago, and it's sort of a bit of the Bible for eucalypt identification. So I'd recommend grabbing that. It's very user-friendly. Um and that's that's what I use, and it's it's yeah really great to take out into the bush with you. Well, Tom, thanks so much for the chat. Um, and you've just written a great article on National Eucalypt Day on rememberthewild.org. Dot yes. org, I think it was. Dot yep. Org. Yep. Yes. And can people find you anywhere else in your work? Uh, look, I'm I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, all those sort of things. Um, just search my name if you'd like, and I'm talking about forests all the time usually. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on Lost in Science, Tom. No worries at all. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science, uh, where we have heard about liquid helium on the very cold, and we have heard about fire and its effect on Australia's eucalypts. Uh, now, Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded in the studios of 3CR, and it is across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Now, we would love you to get in touch with us. Uh, you can send us a message. You can email us on our Gmail account. That is lostinsci at gmail.com. Or you can uh, send us a message on Twitter and follow us. We are Lost in Science 1. You can find us on Facebook. Very popular to find us on Facebook and look us up. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We can also be found on your um, favorite podcast app. Um, if you're finding us through Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store, please take the time to give us a good rating and a review because that will kind of help our rankings and which means other people will even more easily be able to discover the program. Um, of course, you can also find us on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au slash Lost in Science, or you can find us on the air on the radio waves where at same time every week Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.